and welcome to the Extremist Publishing Podcast. I'm Tom Christie. Joining me today is Dr Colin M. Barn, author of Victories at Sea in Films and TV, a new guide to cinematic and televisual presentations of naval warfare. So Colin, in your book you've emphasised the importance of naval actions in achieving a successful outcome during the Second World War. Why is it that you go into such detail about this issue? The war at sea lasted from the first day of the conflict to the last. All the victories the Allies achieved on the ground would not have been possible without the vast quantity of materiel that was shipped across the Atlantic and the Pacific. If we take the Battle of Britain, for example, a key factor in our success in that conflict was supplies of 100 octane petrol from the USA, which boosted the performance of the Rolls-Royce Merlin engines used in our Spitfires and Hurricanes. The Daimler-Benz 601 engine fitted to the Messerschmitt BF109E fighter had a much larger displacement than the Merlin, but didn't have that much more power because it had to operate at lower manifold pressures because the Germans only had 87 octane fuel. In any case, it was the threat posed by the Royal Navy, and not the RAF, which really deterred the Germans from invading Britain. In 1940, the Germans didn't possess a single landing craft, and their invasion fleet consisted of hundreds of river barges and other makeshift vessels. Such a force would have been decimated by the Royal Navy. In 1940, the Luftwaffe didn't have bombs large enough to pierce the armour of capital ships, and they had no torpedo bombers. Lendley's supplies, which were shipped to Russia via the Arctic convoys, also helped the Soviets to defeat the German military machine, while in the Pacific it was the almost total destruction of the Japanese Navy and their merchant fleet, which led to surrender. The two atomic bombs, which were dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, certainly delivered the coup de grace. But Japan was already on its knees by that point. Now, the Dunkirk evacuation, or as it was known, Operation Dynamo, has been the subject of a number of films over the years. What did you think of the recent Christopher Nolan epic, Dunkirk, and how did it compare with earlier films about the subject? Well, Tom, I greatly enjoyed the Christopher Nolan Dunkirk film and I was pleased that in 2017 it was still possible to make a British World War II film which did well at the box office, even in America. All the same, it has attracted some criticism from various people, such as the writer and historian James Holland. Christopher Nolan was quite adamant that he wanted to use as little CGI as possible, so as much as possible of the film was done in camera. This meant, though, that he was unable to convey the sheer scale of the operation. In the film, the beaches seem almost deserted. In reality, they were teeming with men and abandoned equipment, vehicles and guns, and there was a lot of smoke. Nolan apparently used 1,400 extras in the beach scenes, but I think the sheer scale of the operation 
was better depicted in the 1958 Dunkirk film, which starred John Mills and which used thousands of extras supplied by the British Army. Another problem with the 2017 Dunkirk film was ships. In 1940, the Royal Navy had 202 destroyers and 41 of them took part in the Dunkirk operation. In 2016, when the film was made, only one World War II era Royal Navy destroyer, HMS Cavalier, still existed as a museum ship at Chatham Docks. This vessel could no longer move under its own power, but could have been towed to the filming location. Unfortunately, permission to do this could not be obtained, so the producers had to look elsewhere for ships. Although no suitable vessels existed in the UK, the producers located a former French destroyer, the Mile Braise, a 3,900 ton T-47 class vessel, which first entered service in 1957. Like the Cavalier, it no longer had working engines, but could be towed to Dunkirk. To make her resemble a World War II Royal Navy destroyer, her radar towers were removed and a modern missile launcher was concealed behind a dummy gun turret. Fake Royal Navy pennant numbers were applied to the forward hull and she subsequently portrayed two different vessels in the film, HMS Vivacious and HMS Vanquisher, but she really looked too modern and too large to be a 1940 Royal Navy destroyer. Three other vessels portrayed Royal Navy warships in the film. Two Dutch minesweepers and a multi-purpose ship, the Castor, were fitted with dummy gun turrets, but none of these ships really looked anything like wartime British destroyers. They looked more like modern minesweepers, which is what they actually were. Overall, I think the 1958 Dunkirk film gave a better impression of the scale of the operation and the chaos in the beaches. Also, the 2007 movie Atonement has a lengthy section dealing with Operation Dynamo and a large section of beach at Redcar in northeast England was strewn with vehicles and equipment for these scenes, which I think looked more like the actual Dunkirk operation than the more recent film. Now, I did notice that you've included a chapter on the Falklands War, which is a highly controversial conflict that's obviously sparked a great deal of debate. What influence do you think the Falklands War had on modern thinking, and what has its legacy been in terms of naval cinema? The Falklands War had a great influence in politicians and naval strategists, as it emphasised the importance of carrier-based air power, airborne early warning aircraft and effective shipborne anti-aircraft systems including missiles and fast firing guns. It also had a great influence on politicians around the world. Although a minority of the British population opposed the war, the majority did not and Tony Blair once said that if he had been Prime Minister when Argentina invaded the Falklands, 
he would have done exactly the same thing as Margaret Thatcher. In other words, he would have ordered our armed forces to retake the islands. The success of this operation may also have influenced his decision to send British forces into action in Iraq in 2003. Now, there have been a number of attempts to make a film about the Falklands War. Why do you feel that no one succeeded in this endeavour to date? There are a number of reasons why a film about the Falklands War has never been made. One is cost. The late British film producer Ewan Lloyd intended to make a feature film about the conflict in 1983. This would have starred Lewis Collins, who would have reprised his role of Peter Skellen, an SAS captain he had played in the 1982 movie Who Dares Wins. The film had two possible titles, Task Force South and Battle of the Falklands, and was to be shot in Scotland and the Falkland Islands. Unfortunately, the film was never made because Lloyd was unable to raise the £10 million budget. The most recent attempt to make a film about the Falklands War was the proposed movie Destroyer, which was based on a book called 25 Days in May, written by Captain David Hart Dyke, who commanded HMS Coventry, a Type 42 destroyer. On 25th May 1982, HMS Coventry was sunk by Argentine A4 Skyhawks off Pebble Islands in the Falklands. Some filming was carried out with HMS Edinburgh, the last operational Type 42 destroyer, in 2013, and the film was due to be released in 2014. But nothing has been heard about this movie for years, and I would assume that there were funding problems with the film. Another problem facing anyone wanting to make a film about the conflict is that most of the ships and aircraft used in the war no longer exist, while others are now operated by other countries. Britain got rid of all its Harriers and Sea Harriers many years ago. The two assault ships HMS Fearless and HMS Intrepid were scrapped years ago, as were all the Type 42 destroyers and the SS Canberra. The QA2, however, still exists in Dubai as a floating hotel, but cannot move under its own power. Also, a few of the vessels used in the conflict are now in the hands of foreign navies. The Royal Navy originally had eight Type 21 frigates. Two of them, HMS Ardent and HMS Antelope, were sunk in the 1982 war, but the remaining six Type 21s were sold to Pakistan in 1994 and are still in service. The flagship of the 1982 task force HMS Invincible was scrapped years ago, but the other carrier used in the operation, HMS Hermes, was later sold to the Indian Navy and was only recently retired and still exists. Similarly, two of the Type 22 frigates used in the war, HMS Broadsword and HMS Brilliant, were sold to Brazil and are still in service. So, making the film using vessels supplied by foreign navies would be a possibility, 
but would be expensive and logistically difficult. There is, however, a precedent for this. The American heavy cruiser USS Salem played the part of the Graf Spee in the 1956 film The Battle of the River Plate, and the sequence at the end of the 1970 film The Mackenzie Break, involving a German U-boat and a British Fairmile Type D gunboat, was shot in waters off Turkey, with the Turkish Navy supplying both vessels. Another aspect of the war at sea that you cover in your book is that of amphibious assaults. Now, almost everyone knows about the Allied invasion of Normandy, but people don't know a lot about the amphibious landings at Anzio in 1944, and perhaps Inchon in Korea in 1950 as well. Could you tell me a bit more about them and the films that they inspired? The Anzio operation in January 1944 was one of the great missed opportunities of the war. At that point, the Allies were advancing very slowly northward through Italy, but were hampered by the weather and also the terrain which favoured the defender. In order to break the stalemate, the Allies made an amphibious landing at Antio, well north of the front line and within striking distance of Rome. Unfortunately, the Allied force had the misfortune to be commanded by two poor American generals, Major General John Lucas and Lieutenant General Mark Clark. And after achieving a successful landing, they ordered their troops to merely dig in and wait for the Germans to attack. As it happened, there were initially no German troops between Anzio and Rome, so had they simply gone hell for leather for Rome, as General Patton would have done in the same situation, then they could have captured the Italian capital five months before it actually fell. General Mark Clark compounded this error in June 1944 when he disobeyed orders from General Alexander to block the retreat of the German army so that he could instead have the glory of capturing Rome. As a result, hundreds of thousands of German troops were able to flee north to fight another day and an opportunity to end the Italian campaign in 1944 was missed. Journalist Alan Wicker, who was in Italy at the time, later considered this the greatest mistake of the war and said that if Mark Clark had been a general in the German army, he would have been shot. The 1968 film Anzio, which was made in Italy, did mention the Allies' error in not making a quick dash for Rome, but General Mark Clark's second mistake in June 1944 when he disobeyed orders, was not covered in the film, possibly because Clark was still alive at the time and likely to take legal action. The film itself was a fairly mediocre affair, but was interesting because it featured one of the earliest screen appearances of Peter Falk, who later played Columbo. The 1981 movie Inchon which deals with a similar amphibious landing in Korea in 1950, remains one of the most controversial films ever made. In 1950, North Korean forces invaded the South and captured most of the country 
including the capital, Seoul. At this point, the United Nations forces were left holding only a small patch of territory around Pusan, and a Dunkirk-style evacuation seemed likely. In an effort to turn the tide of war, US General Douglas MacArthur flew from Japan to Korea to assess the situation. Eventually, MacArthur's forces carried out an amphibious landing behind enemy lines at Incheon, recaptured Seoul and invaded the north. They would have completely liberated the whole of Korea if the Chinese forces had not crossed the border into the north, pushing UN forces back. These dramatic events were the subject of a 1981 movie, Incheon, which was filmed in South Korea, Ireland, England and Italy. The budget was $46 million, which was a huge sum in its day. And an all-star cast, including Ben Gazzara, Jacqueline Bissett, Richard Roundtree and David Jansen, was assembled for the film. General Douglas MacArthur was played by Laurence Olivier. In order to prepare for the part, Olivier studied films of the late general. One of MacArthur's former aides, General Al Haig, had revealed that Douglas MacArthur sounded a bit like the comedian and actor W.C. Fields, so Olivier came up with a voice which was like W.C. Fields, but with a touch of Jimmy Durante thrown in. By 1950, the ageing MacArthur was in the habit of dyeing his hair dark brown and wearing makeup, including lipstick and mascara, and he also wore a corset, so Olivier did this as well. The result was one of the actor's strangest performances. The director was Terence Young, who is best known for directing three James Bond films, Dr No, From Russia With Love and Thunderball. Unfortunately, Inchon was plagued by production problems, including typhoons, which wrecked outdoor sets. There were also budget overruns and delays, which pushed the cost through the roof. The film received a limited distribution and has never been released on any home entertainment format. It also bombed at the box office. Having seen this movie recently on YouTube, I didn't think it was that bad. The main problem is that it doesn't look like an expensive film, most of it looks no more spectacular than some of the low-budget Oakmont films productions of the 60s. There's only one brief section towards the end featuring the amphibious landings where you can really see the budget up there on the screen. Rather strangely, in 2015, a second film was made about the Incheon Operation called Operation Chromite. It was filmed entirely in South Korea and starred Liam Neeson as MacArthur. Allowing for inflation, the budget was a mere one-tenth of Incheon's and this time the film did very well at the box office, particularly in South Korea, 
where the Battle of Inchon is celebrated as a national victory in the same way commemorate the Battle of Britain and Trafalgar. Another movie that you mention in your book is The Silent Enemy, which starred Lawrence Harvey, and that was based on the life of the Royal Navy frogman Buster Crabbe. How did that film come about? Buster Crabbe was a Royal Navy frogman who was sent to Gibraltar in 1941 to set up a team of divers to counter the activities of Italian underwater sabotage squads. The Italians were very well equipped. They had scuba gear, which was similar to modern diving equipment, and used manned torpedoes carrying two divers who sat on the back as though they were on horseback. These manned torpedoes carried powerful mines which could blow out the bottom of a ship. The British were so impressed by the Italian equipment that they used captured examples and then copied the design. The British copy of the Italian man torpedo was known as the chariot and was later used in an aborted attack on the German battleship Tirpitz. The 1958 film covers Buster Crabbe's wartime career, although some of it is fictionalised and it ends with him receiving a George Medal. Crabbe's story doesn't end there though. In 1956, Buster Crabbe carried out an underwater reconnaissance mission to check out the propellers of a Russian cruiser which was docked at Portsmouth Harbour. Crab never returned from the mission, and the following year a headless body in a diving suit with missing hands was brought up in a fisherman's net. It was thought that this was Crab's body, but this was never established beyond reasonable doubt, and as a result there have been numerous conspiracy theories over the last few decades about what actually happened to him. And of course, there are connections between The Silent Enemy and the book and film Thunderball. When I saw The Silent Enemy for the first time some years ago, I was struck by the many similarities between its plot and some sequences in the film and book Thunderball. For example, in The Silent Enemy, Crab defeats some Italian frogmen by throwing small explosive charges into the water. A similar scene appears in Thunderball when Bond is trying to look at the underside of Largo's craft, the Disco Volante. In The Silent Enemy, Crab discovers that the Italians are using a converted cargo boat fitted with an underwater hatch to launch mini-submarines from an internal water-filled dock. A similar idea appears in Thunderball. Both the Silent Enemy and Thunderball feature an underwater battle between two groups of frogmen, and both films feature a crashed four-engine bomber lying underwater. In The Silent Enemy, it is an Avro Shackleton representing a liberator. In Thunderball, it's an Avro Vulcan. Both aircraft were designed by the same person, Roy Chadwick. It is known that Ian Fleming, who was in the intelligence section of the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve, 
spent some time in Gibraltar during the war, so it is likely that he would have been aware of Buster Crabbe's missions and incorporated these ideas in Thunderball. In your book, you describe Sink the Bismarck as probably the best film about Royal Navy operations during World War II. Why did you come to that opinion? It's a very accurate movie and it looks very impressive. What's so remarkable is that many key sequences were achieved using miniatures as most of the real ships no longer existed. The only Royal Navy warship which took part in the hunt for the Bismarck in 1941, which still existed in 1959, was the carrier HMS Victorious, which was a brand new vessel in 1941 and still in service in 1959. Most of the shots of various warships in the film were achieved using large miniatures in a huge water tank with a painted backdrop at Pinewood Studios. The Royal Navy's last battleship, HMS Vanguard, was also used in some scenes, though couldn't be used in long shots as she had a completely different profile from the Bismarck. My only quibble with the film was that it gave the impression that the Bismarck was sunk by HMS Prince of Wales, which only had 14-inch guns, when in fact it was HMS Rodney, with her nine 16-inch guns, which delivered the killer blows. HMS Rodney and her sister ship HMS Nelson were in fact the only battleships the Royal Navy ever possessed, which had 16-inch guns, and the Rodney in particular played a key role in World War II. As well as sinking the Bismarck, naval gunfire support from the Rodney proved crucial following the D-Day landings. Another chapter in your book is about submarine movies. Do you have a favourite submarine movie? And if so, why did you come to that particular conclusion? Well, it would have to be Das Boot, the 1981 German production, which was made as both a feature film and a TV miniseries. I like this film because it features the most realistic depiction of submarine warfare we've ever seen, particularly the dreadful conditions the crew had to endure. They were sealed inside a metal tube for weeks in end. There was usually only one WC for 50 crew and no baths or showers. The interior smelled of urine, faeces, vomit, sweat and diesel oil. So no one could wash or shave or even change their clothes. And as the boats had limited refrigeration capacity, fresh food soon went off and the crews had to survive on canned foods, which included tinned bread, by the way. In the second half of the war, both the British and Americans fitted showers, air conditioning and dehumidifiers in their submarines, but the German U-boats never had such comforts. As no working U-boats existed in 1981, Bavaria Studios built a full-size towable replica submarine, which was also loaned to Paramount Studios for some scenes in the 1981 film Readers of the Lost Ark. A number of highly realistic miniatures were also built for the film. 
You also include a chapter on naval actions during the Cold War, and you mentioned the Bedford Incident, a movie which many people won't be familiar with. What did you feel was so special about that particular film? The Bedford Incident is a very interesting film because it explores many of the themes that were found in two movies made around the same time, namely Fail, Safe and Doctor Strangelove, and shows how a cat-and-mouse game between a US destroyer and a Soviet submarine could develop into a nuclear exchange, as both vessels were equipped with tactical nuclear weapons. The Bedford incident is also remarkable because it looks like an American film, as it mainly features American and Canadian actors, but it was actually made in the UK at Shipperton Studios. All the interior shots were done inside a real Royal Navy Type 15 frigate, HMS Trowbridge, while the opening sequence showing Sidney Poitier's character Munsford arriving on board were filmed using another Type 15 frigate, HMS Wakeful, and a Royal Navy Westland Whirlwind helicopter, which was painted in US Navy markings to represent a Sikorsky S-55. Most of the long shots of the USS Bedford employed a large and highly realistic studio miniature. The cast included a number of American actors who were resident in the UK at the time, such as Ed Bishop and Shane Rimmer, who both appeared in a number of Bond movies. The film also features one of the earliest screen appearances of Canadian actor Donald Sutherland, who lived in the UK for a few years in the mid-60s. And one final question. I couldn't help but notice that you include a section about the 1972 Doctor Who story, The Sea Devils, back when John Pertwee was still playing this iconic role. Could you say a bit more about that? In the late 1960s and early 70s, the Ministry of Defence helped out with the production of a number of Doctor Who stories. The most conspicuous example would be the 1968 Cyberman story, The Invasion. For this serial, the Ministry of Defence provided a C-130 Hercules transport plane, Land Rovers, a Bedford RL three-ton truck, and a platoon of Coldstream guards for the battle scene in the last episode. The MOD also provided assistance for a number of other stories, which had military sequences such as The Mind of Evil and The Claws of Axos. However, producer Barry Letts and star John Pertwee, who'd both served in the Royal Navy during World War II, were keen to do a story which featured the senior service, and this resulted in the six-part story The Sea Devils, which was broadcast in 1972. The script was by Malcolm Hulk, who'd also served in the Royal Navy, and was a sequel to his 1970 serial, Doctor Who and the Silurians. The plot dealt with the reptilian Silurians' maritime cousins, the sea devils of the title, awakening from hibernation to attack passing ships. The highlight of the story comes in the last episode, when a force of Royal Navy sailors, land by SRN-5 hovercraft, to recapture a naval base which has been taken over by the Sea Devils. The story is fondly remembered 
for its unusual production design, quirky electronic musical score, and the Sea Devil costumes themselves, which incorporated what looked like giant string vests. It's a fan favourite, and when it was released on DVD some years ago, it sold very well. By the way, it's the only Doctor Who story in which Pertwee utters a line which was to become his catchphrase, namely, reverse the polarity of the neutron flow. Well, Colin, thanks very much for taking the time to share your thoughts about your very comprehensive study. Uh, I think anyone who reads this book will be very impressed by the incredible breadth of information and, I must say, some very surprising facts about naval cinema and television dramas. Thanks very much for having joined us today. Well, thank you, Tom. Victories at Sea in Films and TV is available to buy from all good independent booksellers and online retailers worldwide. Thanks very much for joining us today. I hope you'll tune in again soon.